Unearthing Paranormalcy is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange ride. Welcome to another episode of Unearthing Paranormalcy, the podcast that digs into the paranormal and tries to find normalcy in the topic. I'm Amy. I'm Dave. I'm Chad. (laughs) (laughs) And this week, Chad's part cow. Moo. Dave's mountain man. (laughs) Light normal. And I'm me. Yay. Yay. I have now have Yay. a functioning arm that I can't use. Yay. <laughs> it's not quite functioning yet. But everything's in the it's right connected. place. Yeah. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> Until I do something stupid and tear it again. You go to pick up Freya with the wrong arm. Um, that ain't fucking happening. Or you fall over. That's my biggest worry. I'm so fucking clumsy. <laughs> <laughs> Wednesday, I was perfectly fine. I started feeling good. I knocked my arm on every freaking door frame, every wall. So you hit all the glitches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Mom, your bathroom is not handicap accessible. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, thanks for the warning. <laughs> well, we're glad you did good. Your recovery is a bitch, but it'll be yeah. worth it. Just stick to your uh, physical therapy. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to that. I mean, I am looking forward to it, but not looking forward to the pain. Take your pain meds before I go. Before you go, and then I've been told that by multiple people already. (laughs) Yeah, and then you might want to take another one when you get home. (laughs) Just saying, I've been there, done that. So before I guess we get started on this week's episode, let's go ahead and hear a promo from one of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. Epic history. Like, the Greeks are, like, on the beach. They're, like, doing burpees or something. <laughs> the Persians sail up. And they've got, like, they've got, like, little spears and pomegranates and stuff. And they're like, hey, want to be part of our cool empire? In-depth commentary. Cutting-edge expert drunken analysis. <laughs> two people that you don't know anything about. It's ad hoc history with Asher and Luxa. Siblings extraordinaire. Hey, just real quick, like, if you were emperor, would you choose me as second emperor? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. Learning. It's not pretty. It's not nice. And if you want to talk about justification for war and all these things, but when you get to how the sausage is actually made, this is it. It's ad hoc history. It's not the history podcast you wanted. It's the history podcast you deserve. Go check them out. They're awesome. They are. And this week, we're coming at you with a boo, y'all. Boo, y'all. Mainly because we really needed a light research week because we knew Chad was going to be down for the count. Oh, yeah. I was. Feeling good. (laughs) (laughs) Still kind of am. Actually, my pain pills worn off and I'm starting to hurt again. But other than that, I've been feeling pretty good. So you're telling me when I take you home to take you down the bumpiest roads I can find. Oh, and I will slap you. That's like every road in Norman, though. (laughs) Yeah, true. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Our infrastructure is crumbling fast. <laughs> but there's construction on every road, too. So They're fixing it. Just not the sections that need to be fixed. Yeah. It'll be broken by the time it's finished. 
So, Dave, do you want to start us off with a scary story? Sure. I got this book here called The Monstronomicon. It is 100 horror stories from 70 authors. Nice. And I'm just going to go flip to a page and start reading. Bibliomancy time. Well, hopefully he starts at the beginning of the story. And not the end. <laughs> and there was no end. That was a story. <laughs> That's pretty damn scary. <laughs> Give me a good one, Ogma. This is Lamentations of Mother Earth by Zachary Heitman. She wept, tears and streams pouring down her cheeks. She lamented for what she had lost. What had been stolen from her? She regretted her trust. She despised her kindness. But she could do nothing, for she had met her end. Mother Earth was dying. And her wealth had been stripped away from her as a lion devours its prey. She was once beautiful. She was once gorgeous. All the jewels that adorned her, able to satisfy even the greediest of hearts, She had lush and gorgeous forests that ran across her back. Rivers and oceans laid the foundations of her tears. The mighty mountains that gave her power and strength. The black and red blood that ran through her veins. The dry and naked deserts that granted the pigmentation of her skin. She had everything an empress could ever want. She was content. She was the queen of her kingdom ready for all to bow to her, ready to be given splendor and worship from the birds above and the beasts below. She was the emperor, ruler of her domain for all to see, all to give her glory. She was beautiful, and yet she did not know this. Her very beauty came with a price, a price that one day she would be made to pay. Mother Earth witnessed the dawn of a new creature, a strange creature unlike any other one that walked upon the face of her form, a creature unlike others she did not understand. This thing, whatever it was, was foreign to her, a trespasser in her kingdom. It did not behave like the other animals. It did not eat the meat of the creature like a wolf would strip its prey bare. It did not fly like the majestic eagle, soaring for all to witness. It did not walk on all fours akin to the golden lion of earth. Its strange mannerisms were unknown to her. This thing was not in her grasp, not in her clutches. This thing was a trespasser, a foreign enemy walking to Mother Earth's gates. Mother Earth did not understand this strange monster, but the monster knew her well. It saw her jewels with lust. It gazed upon her waters with greed and jealousy. It gazed upon her citizens, her subjects, and burned with murderous rage. It saw her great forest and mountains and wanted to claim it for itself. It wanted all of her beauty. It wanted her innocence, her life. It wanted to possess her, to make her its own. It desired to prostitute her body for its sick desires, to use her opulence to give itself power. It would make her its own, and it would take her by force with all its might. The thing, this cunning and sly creature, it spoke to her. It filled her head with praises like of the animals. It filled her with soft words and words of praise and worship. You are beautiful. You are unique. You are ruler of all. You own me. I am your servant. Let me help you. Let me join you. Mother Earth in her imprudence did not see the cunningness in these words. She did not see the craftiness of this creature, more intelligent than any of her subjects. She thinks that she could have been wrong in her previous suspicions. What if this thing had come to help her? What if this creature brought her more beauty, more splendor, more majesty? What if this creature gave her love? What if it made her more powerful, mightier, stronger? She did not see the trickery in this creature, 
a demon masquerading as an angel of light in her midst. So she gave in. She gave this creature power, not realizing this would be the destruction of her forever. It knew it had power over her. It took delight in knowing Mother Earth trusted it. Such foolishness, such carelessness and weakness. Mother Earth was weak. She deserved to be overthrown. This thing, this monster was better than her. It was smarter and more intelligent. It knew how to use her power, her wealth, to create and destroy. It foresaw what she could bring it, what destructions her organs could raise from the pits in hell. For this is the secret of the creature. It hated creation. It hated beauty. It hated the rising mountains and the soaring birds. It hated the creatures of the deep and the insects that crawled across Mother Earth's skin. It hated the beauty of the emerald green jungles and crystal blue lakes. It wanted to kill. It wanted to extinguish. It wanted to annihilate. It wanted to exterminate. It hated Mother Earth, opposite to its nature. This thing would start a war, and fire and brimstone would accompany this beast in the midst. It did not ask for much. It only asks for small things, common things. Who requires the lakes when you possess the great and vast oceans? Why desire the bare and naked deserts when you have the vast and lush jungles, the strong and mighty pillars of the snowy mountains? Give me what is ugly. Give me your imperfections, your flaws, your weaknesses. All you need is me. I will make you flawless. I am what you need. You deserve me. You desire me. I can make you whole. I can make you perfect. Mother Earth was filled with pride and conceit. She thought she was the most powerful thing on the earth. She thought the rivers and the lakes bowed to her. She thought the deer, the lion, the snake worshipped her for all eternity. Maybe they did, but this beast did not. It did not worship her. It defied her. It, in its wicked heart, made a fool of her beauty. It saw beyond the jewels and opulence. It saw her vanity. It knew her weaknesses. It knew she did not see the beast for what it truly was. So the beast laughed. It laughed a hearty laugh. It laughed at her impunity. <laughs> it laughed at her foolishness. It laughed at how it had deceived her, filling her with soft words. <laughs> filling her with the worst of its lies to make her trust it, to make her love it. It delighted in the fact that she looked at this shriveled and naked creature with love. It laughed at how she only saw its face, its handsome face, its demonic presence. Mother Earth in her vanity and her carelessness did not see the inside of this beast. She did not see its cold and wretched heart. She did not see the evil of its soul. She was blind, yet she could see. She could hear, yet she could not listen. Mother Earth had power and beauty standing beside her throne. But this beast, this creature of darkness, had the intelligence to bring the very kingdom she loved so much to ruin. The beast's wish was granted. The dry and bare deserts it gained, the lakes with the creatures of the deep it acquired. It traveled to its new toys. It ventured far to what it had gained. It started devising a plan, a cruel plan, a wrathful plan, a cunning and evil plan. It knew what it had gained. It knew the value, the true wealth of what it had acquired. So this monster, a creature of old, did what its very nature commanded it to do. It destroyed. It raised and stripped. It dug and clawed. It drained the lakes of their water. It killed the beast of the sea with jealous rage. It mined the ground beneath it. It tore the jewels out of Mother Earth's crown. It fashions itself a throne and a crown of the beast it slew. It pronounced itself as king and ruler over all. It made monsters out of what it killed, 
horrible beast scarier than itself, beasts that could topple whole continents, monsters that could destroy with a single swoop of a talon, monsters that made you want more, monsters that filled you with desire, monsters that wormed their way through your mind until you became a writhing worm on the desolate earth. This beast, this monster created an army. It created an armada, ready to storm the gates of Mother Earth's castle. And in the wrath this wretched beast had concocted, Mother Earth finally saw the beast for what it truly was. Her ears were no longer deaf. Her eyes at last could see. Mother Earth saw the beast's destruction and wept. She wept for the destruction of her Earth. She wept at what this incomprehensible creature had done. She gazed upon the bodies that filled her domain, the crimson lion, the crushed insects, the emptiness and destruction. Her wealth had been stripped from her. Her jewels tarnished, her crown shattered. She was bare, she was naked, she was cold. She had no more, so she cried, a sorrowful cry. She cried for her subjects she had lost. She cried for the forests that had met their end. She wept for her blood drained from her body. She lamented for the trust she had shown. She regretted her pride and vanity, her foolishness, her conceit. She knew she was not powerful. She realized that she had been tricked, deceived. Her kingdom had been laid to waste, and she was no more. She was dying, and yet the beast saw her. It saw her and spoke to her and did what it did best. I granted your wishes. I accomplished your desires. I never once lied to you. I made you powerful. I gave you splendor and majesty. I filled your heart's desires. I made you beautiful, for I have exposed you for what you truly are. You are prideful. You are arrogant. I do not destroy you, Mother Earth. I became your mirror, a mirror that showed you your heart's true desires. Boo, y'all. Boo, y'all. That was pretty deep. Yeah. Okay. I shall read to you. All right. I don't have the author, but this is from thedarkestblog.com. Did you get this off the deep web? Maybe. Oh, no. Silhouette at the door. Yeah, that's the dare. Oh, you think I'm scared? I'm not. Okay? Anya was dead scared, miffed by the very thought of stepping out into the corridor. Not only was she afraid of the darkness that percolated around the dimly lit bulb near the staircase, but she was also petrified by the very idea of being left out alone. And her friends were challenging her to take the whole damn trip all by herself. Besides, there were already hushed talk of the convent being haunted. There were whispers of how there have been sightings during the night. There have been suicides over the years that were kept under wraps. And it was rumored quite covertly the dead tarried with the living with all that still fresh in the backdrop a bunch of hustling girls were trying to provoke Anya after seeing through her mask of pretense they knew that she was a coward and yet they wanted to have their quarter of fun with it some dare it was okay let me get this straight Anya was up on her feet showing a feigned enthusiasm of a horror story that awaited. I have to exit from here, she pointed to the door, and then take a left from the stairs and pass the corridor and then come back to the back door here, she pointed left, thus completing the circle, right? Yes, everyone shouted in unison. The excitement of the adventure was killing them. Okay, done. Silence pervaded. Anya took a deep breath as if preparing herself for a feat that she wasn't ready for minutes ago. She looked at the wall clock and the tick tock on her left. It read 2 a.m. 
boogeyman hour. Other girls, the audience, were still sitting in their beds with their eyes peeled open. Some of the girls even had their blankets on. It was both thrilling and unsettling at the same time. Some of them tried to picture doing it themselves, but they couldn't go through it all the way. For it was creepy as hell. All alone by yourself. That too in the damn corridor. And that too so late. The mere knowledge of that gave them goosebumps. They watched Anya step slowly and with unsure steps. The, the, the dim light from the staircase showed only a silhouette of her as she walked on. She had only taken a few steps when she fun- suddenly stopped moving. Everyone's eyes were on her. Her silhouette was standing still in the darkness ahead. The girls in the room looked at each other and then the silhouette again. Guys, uh, why is Anya not moving? I don't know. Could she have seen something? The other half of them shouted, shouted her name to make her turn, but the silhouette didn't budge. Was this a bad idea? I don't know. We should never have asked her to go. Go check on her. Why should I? You sent her. You go. Let's go together. They refused. Everyone waited with their hearts in their mouths despite the little chit chat despite their little chit chat nobody moved. They were still busy looking at the silhouette. When out of the blue, Anya returned from the back door saying, "Guys, I did it." Shrieks of horror heaved up in the room. All the girls turned to look to check on the silhouette again, but it was no longer there. Anya was confused. As she tried to make out the situation, she was worried about what was so wrong with her and the girls looked so disoriented. Soon they filled her in on the silhouette that they had seen of her, telling her about how it hung there when she had stepped out. It was baffling to Anya, as she had found the journey quite okay. That even though her heart beat more than its regular pace, she was still able to do it unfazed. Sweta went ahead and closed the sh- and shut the door. The gang of girls tried to sleep that night, but no one could. That image of the silhouette would not disappear. Dun, dun, dun. All right, Dave, what's your next story? All right, Ogma, I request another good one. This is The Monster in the Closet by Riley O'Dell. I first became aware of myself in a closet. My earliest memories are of sitting in that eerie darkness, surrounded by piles of musty clothes. My parents were busy, or they were tired, or they just wanted their alone time. Whatever the excuse, I played in there a lot as a kid. That's what they called it, playing. Most kids play outside in the sun. I played in a small room with the lights off and a door that only came unlocked when my parents wanted it to. At three, four years old, I didn't know that it was wrong, that other kids didn't have their own version of the closet. But by the time I was five or six, I could tell that something was up. It was around that time that I remember objecting every time they tried to put me in there. They said, Keep fussing and playtime will be longer. They always made good on their threats. I didn't make it easy for them. They wanted me not seen and not heard, but although they could put me out of sight, nothing could stop me from making noise. I pounded on the door until my fist hurt screaming, Let me out! Until I was so tired that I couldn't anymore. It wasn't long before they found a way to counter that, too. My dad spoke sternly as he tied me up in rope and put a piece of duct tape on my mouth. No more pounding on the door. No more let me out. From now on, we let you out at scheduled times to use the bathroom and that's it. You'll sleep and eat your meals in the closet. Do I make myself clear? I had tears streaming down my face. My dad smiled and wiped one off with his finger. Don't cry, champ. 
It's not going to be this way forever. Just until you learn to be a good boy, okay? I fought and fought against my restraints. But it was no use. The door closed shut, once again trapping me in my dark and terrible cell. But this time I couldn't even move. Couldn't even scream to express how helpless and terrified I felt. A long time passed. It felt like days, weeks. The hunger in my stomach grew and grew until it hurt, and I thought that I would starve. I'd never known what it was like to be so hungry. Would my parents allow me to die? Did they care even less than I thought they did? Hey, kid. The man stood in the corner of the closet, and all I could see were his bright red eyes. You want out of here? I nodded. He scared me, but that fear was nothing against the closet itself. He was someone to talk to, and he was offering a way out. And that meant I didn't care who he was or why he was there. You sure? I nodded again. I'll ask you one more time. Are you absolutely 100% sure you want to get out of this closet no matter what? How many times would he make me nod? I was sure, I was sure, I was sure. 100% no matter what. Seconds passed and nothing happened. The man was quiet. I tried to shift my weight to get more comfortable, but found that I couldn't move. When I was tied up, I could still move parts of my body, but now I couldn't do anything at all. I could still control my eyes, though. And as I looked around, I saw something that filled my heart with ice. I saw me lying on the ground. Not me. My body. I wasn't in it. Yet it turned to me, looking up at my eyes. I'm sorry I had to do this, said who or whatever was inside. When I promised you could leave this closet, I didn't mean you. I only meant your body. If you find another person willing to make a trade with you, only then will you be allowed to leave. Later on, my parents came to let him out, and I remained trapped. I don't want to go in the closet, Mom, little Freddy whined. How many times do I have to tell you there's a monster in there, and he has red eyes, and he says weird things about making deals that I don't understand? He's scary, Mom. Frederick. Mrs. Judge said, her tone strict and unyielding. I am only asking you to put away your shirt. If you don't do that in the next ten seconds, there will be no dessert after dinner tonight. But, ma'am... I'm counting, Frederick. Frederick groaned in protest, but dutifully did as he was told. He padded up to the door and threw it open, light flooding the interior of the closet he placed his folded Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles t-shirt at the top of his shirt stack and turned back around. I could tell he was making a concerted effort not to look at the corner where he'd see my beady red eyes looking back at him. I know you want to ask, Mr. Monster, and the answer is no, he said, still faced the other way. If and when you change your mind, the offer will still be available. I responded, but I knew he never would. Frederick shut the door, and his footsteps receded down the hallway. Once again, I was alone, and my prison was enshrouded in darkness. That was a good one. That was good. Boo, y'all. I like that one. I like that one. A little Harry Potter-esque, but then dark and twisty. <laughs> I want to come out of the closet. <laughs> no. <laughs> Master gave Dolby a sock. Oh, wait, no. Dolby is free. <laughs> Dolby a free elf. <laughs> All right. My next one is witch, witch stories. Witches from the grave. Which story are you saying? A true story. Again, this is from thedarkestblog.com. A recent chat with a newly made friend... Tingled the, t- tingled the topic of witch stories. He had his own personal experiences to share. Intrigued, I asked him to tell the story. Despite him being laconic about it, 
He gave into the continuous pestering. He pointed out his goosebumps whilst he, whilst he narrated. And it was fathomable. Apparently, the bloke was dead scared that night. Here goes the story, a recent addition to our category of witch stories. I have written in first person so that you can relate more to it. Hope you enjoy as it as I hope you enjoy it as much as it I am thrilled to listen to it. I waited at the Armistar Armistar Airport, occasionally looking at the time on my mobile phone, which was one AM already. Where is this guy? I called up my uncle once again, asking about his whereabouts. Oh, you're still waiting? Change of plans. He has already stopped in New Delhi. No need to stay there. Come back home. Damn it, what a waste of time. I replied under my breath, then turned around to leave. When I reached my car in the parking, I found a man sitting with his luggage on the pavement, looking up at the streetlights. Hey there, are you waiting for someone? I asked casually. He kept looking at the lights, one by one, as he replied. I'm waiting for a cab, but couldn't find one. When I heard that, I thought I would give the poor guy a lift. He was going in my direct if he was going in my direction. Where are you headed? I asked almost immediately. I'm headed towards Gudaspur. What a coincidence. I live in Gudaspur. Hop on. I'll drop you there. No issues. The man stood up, still busy looking at the lights one by one. I picked up his luggage and put it at the top of the car. And he blurted out, No, no, not there. Inside, inside. A second ago, he didn't have any help. Now he has, or now that he has, he thinks he owns it. I started thinking maybe it was a mistake offering this guy a ride. I complied and put his stuff inside, but to my surprise, found him sitting in the back seat. I remarked, Why don't you come and sit up front with me? No, I'm fine here. Came back the reply. What a weird dude, I thought to myself. I adjusted the rearview mirror on his face to avoid any surprise. Then I started the engine and the car, le- lurched, flo- the car lurched forward. As I was just about to take a left turn to leave the airport, the man, sh- man shouted from behind, One sec, one sec. Take a right. Turn first. Then take me towards the entrance. I took a right instead of a left. As we came parallel to the entrance, he asked me to slow down. Okay, she's not here. Let's go. I thought maybe he had a wife or someone close to him. He must have been looking for her without asking any more questions. I hit the main road. It was only when the road became empty that he spoke again. Drive fast. I felt like a driver who'd been ordered around to do whatever this man asked me to do. What's wrong with the world, I thought to myself. I dabbed the throttle and the car leaped ahead. On both sides of the road were trees. My car's headlights were the only way to deduce them. The place would have been otherwise really dark. The time must have been 2 a.m. And we were the only ones on the road. An odd time to be... An odd place to be at, and with odd company sitting behind. I could notice from the mirror the guy was sweating. Maybe it was my driving, I thought, but I didn't lower my speed. As we were about to cross a Grutawara, the man shouted, Stop the car! Stop the car! I didn't understand why. I hit the brakes and took a left cut to stop at the gate of the Gatawara. Gurdara, something like that. As soon as I stopped, the man ran towards the gate shouting, Help, help, I'm being tortured. I was dumbstruck. What the hell? I thought as I got from the car. Men from Gurdara came with swords and sticks to help the fellow out. He pointed towards me, asking the men to do something. I at once tried to explain myself. Oh, brothers, this guy is mad. I was about to defend myself more when the same man asking me to come quickly towards him to safety. He was pointing towards something on the roof of the car. Even though I was relieved that he didn't mean me, I was curious as to what was on the roof of the car, but I found nothing. 
When I went to the guy, he told me the whole story. What had really happened? The man explained to me that he had handled a construction site in Dubai, and they had two graves. While, and they found two graves while excavating, and the workers had asked him what needed to be done. Without any sense of apathy, he had almost shouted, "Get rid of those immediately!" It was later that night that he began seeing two witches. One was the mother, while the other was her daughter. They followed him all all the way from there till he returned to his home. On the airport, when he sat on the pavement, they were sitting on the streetlights. They came on the roof of the car and followed us as we drove. He didn't tell me about them, or I wouldn't have taken him in the first place. When he asked me to speed up, he said that the mother witch was dangling from the front windscreen, and while the daughter was waving towards my right. Too afraid to say anything, I looked at my car once again. It took me more than a day to muster up the courage to drive it again. The man, on the other hand, left early in the morning on a bus where he claimed that he would be safe with all those people around. They don't come at me when I'm in a crowd. I still remember him saying, I don't know what happened to the bloke later on, but whenever I think of that day, I shudder with a thought of allowing people to hitchhike. Why you don't let hitchhikers? Yep. They bring witches. All right, Dave, you got another one for us? I do. This is Gray Man by Jen Marshall. The haunted mansion offered only two types of summer employment, ghost or tour guide. A ghost job was to scare people. And when there wasn't anyone to scare, they hung out on the front porch of the mansion. Smartphones hadn't been invented yet, so they passed the time by talking, smoking, and making out in the coffins. A tour guide's job was to pick up trash, collect tickets, and deal with herds of sweaty, tired guests. They weren't allowed on the front porch. Now, the haunted mansion wasn't some ordinary run-of-the-mill spook house made of cheap plywood and jump scares. It was a masterpiece. It had started out as a real house, a beautiful Victorian, but a fire had gutted the inside, killing one person and rendering the home inhabitable. A master carpenter, noticing its potential, had bought it cheap, moved it to the amusement park, and begun its transformation. First, he'd blocked the windows to keep out the light. Then he'd sealed the front and back doors and built a new guest interest on the side of the building. Then he added flickering chandeliers covered in cobwebs, paintings that seemed to come alive, and stairs that creaked all the way up to a landing that tilted when stepped on, as though it was going to crash to the floor below. Most ingenious of all was the web of secret passages hidden behind the walls, accessible only by a series of invisible doors. These passages allowed ghosts to seemingly appear out of nowhere, vanish, and then silently materialize in an entirely different part of the house. The effect was terrifying. The secret hallways were painted black and kept completely dark, so in order to sprint through them noiselessly, ghosts had to memorize the entire labyrinth and locations of the concealed doors. Every summer they suffered bruises and bloody noses from running into walls, but it was worth it. Danny would have given anything to be a ghost. He knew the passages better than anyone. He had great haunting skills and an epic Jack the Ripper costume. Every year he practiced for the auditions, and every year he got rejected. He couldn't understand it. You're like a flashlight in a junk drawer, his mom would say. You can shine all day, but it doesn't matter if nobody sees. So Danny settled for being a tour guide. Wearing a monocle and a faux mustache, he guided visitors into the ghostly library to begin their tour. Welcome to the haunted mansion, he said in his best Transylvanian accent, where all your nightmares will come true. Vlad, the original owner of this mansion, tortured his victims by impaling them on stakes in his very backyard 
and their screams rang out through the countryside. The villagers finally lynched him, but Vlad returned from the dead and brought back the worst residents of hell. They still roam this place looking for fresh blood and new victims. Danny loathed that stupid story. He found it particularly insulting in light of the fact that the mansion had an actual, honest-to-God ghost about whom he would have happily made up countless stories. But employees weren't allowed to talk about Gray Man, especially not with customers. According to legend, Gray Man was huge, and he always held something in his hand. A shotgun? A cane? A cleaver? Nobody knew for sure. He appeared in a drifting gray mist, sometimes standing against a wall facing towards it, hands at his side like a child put into a corner. Mostly, though, he crawled. Seeing him approaching on his hands and knees scuttling across the floor was a very unsettling experience. It was easy to tell when Guest had inadvertently encountered him. They'd stumble out of the mansion, pale and shaking, heading straight to the manager to complain. The employee in the gray costume is too scary, Danny had once heard a customer say. I thought you had a no-touching rule. You need to talk to that guy or somebody's going to get hurt. Managers always apologized and refunded their money. They never told guests the truth, though, that they'd encountered an authentic ghost. The haunted mansion was supposed to be scary in an entertaining way. Gray Man was the kind of scary that wasn't fun at all. Danny worked long shifts, and during lulls in guest traffic, he'd sneak around the side of the house and stand in a flower bed near the porch. Hidden in the shadows, he'd savor the ghost voices and cigarette smoking drifting on the summer air. Everyone had a Gray Man story each one scarier than the one before. Danny loved them all. He had so many questions. Why did Gray Man crawl? What did he carry? Why did he stare at the walls? One night while eavesdropping, Danny thought he heard his own name, followed by a commotion of whispering and shuffling. Seriously, he's like right over there, someone said softly. Danny stayed still, like a ninja. He closed his eyes and clenched his fists, trying to make himself smaller. Then Amber, a zombie bride, spoke loudly. So they tried to schedule me for the third shift tomorrow night, but I'm not doing it. I don't care what they say. Well, I'm not going to do it either. I doubt if anyone will, added Megan, an inbred psycho hillbilly who sat cross-legged on one of the coffins. I wish we knew someone who would. Danny could not believe his ears. They needed a ghost. Of course it was third shift, the last shift of the night. The one nobody wanted. Customers were scarce at that time, and they were mostly drunk and belligerent. Also, Gray Man had a tendency to appear during those hours. Danny didn't care. He'd do anything to be a ghost. Hey, Dort, you spying on us? Asked Tripped, a newly dead football player with gory gashes on his face. The guy had been a ghost for the past three summers, and a dick for probably his whole life. (laughs) Danny took a deep breath, ripped off his mustache, and forced himself to step into view. Hey guys, he said. Danny, what are you doing here? Asked Amber, putting a cigarette between her lips. I can cover third shift if you want or whatever, Danny said. You do shirt sh- you do third shift, asked Megan. Aren't you scared? Her she narrowed her eyes. He shook his head. What about Gray Man? He shrugged. Come on, Megs. He can handle it, can't you, Danny boy? said Trip. Danny nodded. Okay, I'll set it up. Meet us here tomorrow night and we'll get you started, okay? said Megan. Deal, said Danny. Too eagerly, dorkily, embarrassingly. And dude, get a decent costume, like a scary one. Nobody likes that stupid Shakespeare crap, added Tripp. 
Too excited to educate him on the difference between Elizabethan poets and Victorian serial killers, Danny took off around the side of the haunted mansion. He showed up early the next night. The ghosts partied every night, but this time it looked like they'd brought the party to the mansion. They lounged on the coffins, laughing and drinking beer. Everyone seemed to be there except Trip. Danny was too happy to bother wondering why. I can't believe you're doing third shift, said Amber. You're brave. Some kids snickered, but Danny looked at his shoes and shuffled them in the dirt. He didn't like to brag, but he was pretty brave. His mom always said so. Hey, go on up to the costume room and put on your makeup, said Megan. For real? Yeah, you're one of us now, right? Danny had seen the costume room before, of course, but he'd never used it. Cramped and brightly lit, it smelled of stage makeup, which reminded him of rotten carrots, but in a wonderful way that filled him with excitement. He'd worn his Jack the Ripper costume in spite of Tripp's protest, and he was glad. Anything else wouldn't have felt right. He added a splash of blood to his glasses, then went to the porch to wait with the other ghosts. Just as they sat down, the alert came that customers were approaching. After entering the mansion through the employee's entrance, he slipped into one of the secret hallways. He paused, wishing his eyes would adjust to the darkness. A few dim red guide lights glowed near the floor, but they didn't provide any light to see by. Arms outstretched, Danny walked gingerly toward the front of the mansion, where he'd make his first appearance to the guest as they left the haunted library. He stopped where he thought the door was located, reached for the handle, and found it exactly where he'd expected. He smiled in the darkness. He was born for this. Danny took a minute to get into character, then opened the door to the mansion proper. The guest should have been walking right past by then, up the ramp from the library. But nobody was there. A thin layer of grave vapor floated near the ceiling which was odd because the fog machine had been broken since the beginning of summer. Then he smelled cigarettes. Danny frowned. Everyone knew smoking in the mansion was a fire hazard. Hurrying to the library, Danny found it empty too. He felt a pang of fear. Had he missed an entire group of guests? He re-entered the secret passages and hurried to the next exit, which was concealed in a grandfather clock in the dining room. Nobody was there either. Sweating now, Danny listened in vain for the creaking stairs or the landing pretend falling. He'd lost the guest. It was such a rookie mistake, so humiliating. Back inside the passages, he bounded up the concealed stowaway two steps at a time, ran down a hall and emerged from behind a painting of a gruesome old man holding a skull. If the guests were upstairs, he would hear them. He heard nothing. Danny barreled back downstairs and when he came to ramp again. And when he came to the ramp again, his heart seized. It was filled with smoke. Nauseated, Danny watched the gray haze swirl and dance as something moved through it fast. He screamed as Gray Man burst out of the smoke and pounded toward him. Danny couldn't move, not even to step out of the way as Gray Man closed the distance between them. Everything felt like slow motion, like a dream where you can't speak or move. Squinting, Danny saw the specter was holding something. A video camera? It wasn't Gray Man. He realized it was Trip, dressed in gray clothes. Out of my way, freak, there's a fire back there. We need to get out of here and call the fire department. He hit Danny with his shoulder as he ran past, shoving him into the wall. What about the guest? No guests, just you and me, he yelled before disappearing into the darkness at the back of the mansion. Danny didn't follow, physically or mentally. Why would Tripp dress up like Gray Man? Nobody ever did that. They were too scared of pissing off the real ghost. Was this an initiation ritual? Is that why they'd been videotaping? One thing Danny knew for sure. He wasn't letting the haunted mansion burn down, not on his watch. He hurried to where the smoke seemed densest, 
holding his cape over his face, breathing through the thin material. The fire was in the passageways. He went in and found the area filled with smoke. Even the red guide lights were now concealed. He searched for the fire, coughing and choking and cursing Trip. The idiot had been smoking in the mansion, probably drinking too, and Danny felt sure that that was how the fire had started. He tripped over something, fell, and when he stood up, he was disorientated. There was no air, only smoke, and he couldn't see where he'd come in. He ran his hands over the walls, fingers scrabbling over every crack and indention, hoping to find a door by blind luck. He tried the other side, but felt nothing except the rough black paint that covered the walls. Remembering some grade school fire safety video, Danny dropped to his knees where the smoke was thinner. The air was clear enough to see, and there at the other end of the hallway was Gray Man. Glowing sightly, he crouched on his hands and knees, motionless and alert, like he was searching for something. His face looked blurry through the smoke, but there was no mistake in the moment he saw Danny, because he began crawling instantaneously. Danny scooted back, slamming his head into the wall. Blood dripped down the back of his neck. Tears coursed over his face. Desperately, he reached behind him, feeling blindly for the outline of the door. As Gray Man crawled closer, Danny saw what he held in his hand. An axe. He tried to scream but couldn't muster the air, so he watched silently as Gray Man pushed the axe along the floor each time his hand moved forward. Crying harder now, Danny tried again and finally found the outline of the door, but the handle wasn't there. The surface was smooth under his fingers. He ran them around the edge of the door again. Where was the handle? Gray Man had stopped on his hands and knees in front of Danny and was moving his head in an unnatural way, like a drugged animal about to attack. Smoke whirled around both of them, obscuring everything, but Danny could see Gray Man gesturing with his axe, pointing to the door he leaned against. Suddenly, Danny knew the answers to all his questions. Gray Man crawled because he'd been trained to keep his body low under layers of smoke. To stay safe in burning buildings. He seemed so massive because of his heavy coat and helmet. And the axe in his hand was a Pulaski. Gray Man was a fireman. He was the one who died in the first fire. Before the house became the haunted mansion. When Danny pictured the original four plan, it made even more sense. Gray Man stared at the walls because that's where the windows had been, and the spot Danny leaned against had once been the front door of the house. It had been sealed shut by the carpenter, but Gray Man didn't know that. It was the only exit he knew, the only door he'd seen before he died. Gray Man moved even faster now, and Danny closed his eyes just before he felt his body smash against the closed door. His nose broke, and blood poured down his shirt. He screamed, but it made no difference to Gray Man. He was a fireman, and his job was to get Danny through that door, out of the house, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how long it took to save him. That was a Another good one. Another really good, really good one. Yeah. <laughs> Boo y'all. Boo y'all. Boo y'all. And my last story is called The Convent Story. Hush. Sophia signaled at Emily to zip it, who was busy giggling at the corpse. Silence, girls. Emily just pointed at Sister Margaret's pale face and murmured something beneath her breath. Rose had joined in the mischief. They were both trying their best to control their laughter. It was an unfortunate day for the convent. Sister Margaret, who had still been who was still on the good side of her thirties, had passed away in an accident. Now she rested in a coffin in a bed of roses, whilst children who didn't understand death paid their respects. Well at least tried to. 
Emily was amused by the expression on the cadaver. It reminded her of the sister's puckered nose when she used to scold them. Her nose would always flare up in a funny manner, which they would later on imitate in their dormitories. Rose was a good impersonator. She could even copy her mannerisms. It is not good. She is dead. You're in a funeral for crying out loud. Sophia was now fuming with anger as Emily and Rose failed to keep their tittering in check. They fell silent on realizing that the solemnity of the situation, the dead should not be made fun of. When it was Sophie's... Sophia's turn to pay her respects. She looked at the cadaver carefully. Poor Sister Margaret, she thought. She had never bothered her, for she had always been a bright kid, or a bright child. She always did her homework on time and paid attention, and paid attention to her when Sister spoke and answered all the questions correctly. Sophia was on Margaret's good side. She could tell that the sister had always felt proud of her for she was the brightest of all the students. She looked at the pursed lips and wondered how lifelike they seemed, or as if she were only sleeping, that she would get up any second now and walk away from the coffin, shout at the top of her voice, and ask the children to open their books. Sophia scrutinized their brow, her brows, her eyelids, all her distinct features carefully, as she would up close every day, for she sat in the very front bench. Her eyes, what were they like, she thought. Weren't they a shade of pale blue? In that split second of a moment, Sophia imagined them opening as Margaret turned to face her and smiled. The deafening silence erupted inside her and then the whole world around her suddenly frozen. Move, someone chimed in from behind. Her reverie broken by Percy asking for her turn. Sophia looked at her and then swiveled back to see the corpse. Sister Margaret had not inched a bit. She was just lying there, dead as a corpse could be. During recess, when the girls were out in the field playing handball, she just sat looking at them, their faces glowing in contrast to what she had just witnessed. She wondered how easily people could move on as if nothing had happened. What was death to them? A social gathering for gathering for what, an hour? Is that all the time they had got to spare for the dead? Or maybe they're happy because the dead reminds them of celebrating the living. She wondered about all the mundane things people often dug their heads into. The ever-chugging chug- engine of their pointless acts and their hunt for a deliberate indifference to keep their heads from thinking about death. A moving, feeling life had been pu- plucked out just like that and the world doesn't give a shit emily pounced on her gasping for breath what happened to you sophie you look lost nothing i'm fine come join us i don't feel like it you guys carry on i'm gonna go to the study hall she picked up her books and trundled towards the spacious corridor what a killjoy whispered rose as soon as sophia left rose she's our friend reminded Emily. Yeah, yeah, I know. Come on, let's go. Rose pulled the worried worried Emily back into the game. There were just three other girls in the study hall when Sophia pushed open the heavy door. They looked alarmed. On finding out it was just another student, they went back to their magazine that they had snuck in from somewhere. Life moves on, Sophia thought as she took took a first row seat. She could barely read, though, through their giggling, and she turned around, exasperated, and stared right at them. The girls went silent. One of them signaled to the others to leave, to take the party somewhere else. As they were leaving, the last one pulled the door really hard. The door banged shut, and, it, the, and its echo resounded across the empty hall. It was soon followed by an unsettling silence. For a second, Sophia failed to realize she was all by herself in the study hall. As she tried to concentrate on the book she was reading, she realized that she wasn't alone. She was accompanied by the notion, a notion of Sister Margaret being alive. A memory of her teaching in the same study hall erupted into Sophia's mind. As the hall got reimagined with students, 
they were repeating after sister as she enunciated an unpronounceable word, nodding her head as she walked on. Her eyes met Sophia's, and she stopped, looked right at her, waiting for her to pronounce. The class went silent, the light dim, and Sophia struggled to open her lips, unable to answer, wondering if it was too very late. Just as just then she heard a whisper from behind her. Sophia. Sophia turned around almost immediately, looking at the dim lit corners of the large room. She scanned from one corner to another. The voice seemed to have come from far away, maybe from the past. Considering it was too fanciful a trick in her mind of her mind, she once again dug her head into the book. What if Sister Margaret's soul never left? What if she liked the comment so much she decided to stay? The thought crept into her like a slow-moving snake. It's made its way from the back of her neck towards her face and pulled her attention towards the shut door. The only bulb in the room flickered. Just at then, the same whisper she had heard seconds ago came right from right behind her desk. That was it for her. Sophia sprang for the door as if she had seen a ghost. But when she pulled the, the door open, it failed to open. She rapped on the door frantically. Open the door, somebody, please. It won't open. Is anybody there? She turned around and looked once again at the blank space. The bulb flickered, a dying light. Scanning the room anxiously, she, her eyes dilated, moved from bench to bench for the for they were the only tangible elements there that spoke of reality. Then suddenly, the bulb went out. The scream lit up the corridors of the convent. Girls came running towards the wrapping door. Open the door, please. Please open the door. Ah! That was all they could make out. The girls pushed the door as hard as they could, but it was jammed. It won't open. Try from your end, one of the helpers shouted. Are you all right? What happened? One of them... Another asked. Two sisters came to hearing the shriek. When they realized their efforts were tile, they sent for the pwn. By then, Emily was already in there. She asked everyone to move aside. Then she pull, put all her weight on the shoulder, put all her weight on one shoulder and pushed the door with all her might. The door sprang open. A sobbing, terrorized Sophia was sitting on the floor. She had never appeared so powerless. The light was back on. The room was no longer dark. Emily went forward and touched Sophia. The poor soul looked as if she had submitted to dread. She hugged Emily and started crying. Everything's going to be all right, Sophia. I'm here, whispered Emily as she took her away to the dorm. The night rarely ever came with promise for the convent. Since the girls liked to discuss hushed voices and hushed, and hushed voices, the topics of ghosts, for the th very thrill of it kept them entertained. But this night was different. The incident with Sophia was on everyone's lips and minds. The girls were imagining the horror she had faced all alone inside. Theories and stories were already doing their rounds. Sister Margaret's ghost had already become a tale that were to live on in everyone's mind for centuries to come. It would only take generations of skeptics to get over it. Or maybe time. Time heals everything, so they say. Emily and Rose sat till late with Sophia to make her feel at home, supported, like she, like true friends do. Sophia's snivels paved way for laughter as they chatted more and more about their goof-ups in class or how they pulled a prank on each other. When the laughter died down, it was time to bid goodnight. Emily pointed to Sophia. I'll be right over here if you need anything. Sophia smiled and started making her bed. Two, two hours later, everyone was fast asleep, fast asleep. Sophia woke up in the middle of the night with the same noise that she had heard in the study hall. She casually opened her eyes and found that she was facing the wall. But then she became conscious, for she could feel someone heavy, someone's heavy breathing coming from right behind her. Sheer horror painted her face as she visualized 
it to be none other than Sister Margaret. She didn't have the strength to turn around and look for what she might discover. She left. She let the moment pass in an utter, in utter fright. Minutes passed into hours, but the heavy breathing wouldn't stop. It just stood there watching her. Please stop. That was all she could manage when Sophia got tired of being afraid. It was right after when she heard a noise of heavy robes moving away in a despondent walk. The breathing seemed to be inching further away from her. It appeared as if it waited at the door for her, then finally disappeared down the hall. Finally, Sophia turned to look. There was nothing there but a room of full full of heavy sleepers. She got a hold of her blanket and slept this time with her facing the door. As she did, her fault her fart. As she did, her heart felt heavy. She felt desolate inside. She was sorry for something that she didn't quite understand. Booyah. That was a good one. And that will conclude yet another Booyah episode. Thank you all for listening. Um, I think we're going to come back next week with kind of a cryptid. Isn't that what the plan is for next week? I think so. It's kind of like a cryptid. Um, be sure to use the links in the description to check out Parabox Monthly and get your monthly paranormal t-shirt shipped to your door. Use promo code paranormal at checkout and get 10% off your order. As well as use the link for the HalloweenCostumes.com and get all your spooky season gear. Um, also, don't forget to check out all the Green Mushroom Podcast Network shows. Faith Blind Council, Luxicult, Smuts Up, Ad Hoc History, Administrism, XV Planus, Primordia, and Grognostics. And I think that's going to do it for tonight. So until next time. Keep digging. Unearthing Paranormalcy is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at pgmpodcastnetwork.com.